Hey, everybody. My name is Rob Shear, and I'm the founder of a national nonprofit called Comfort Cases. I'm also an advocate for children in our foster care system, a public speaker, an author of a book, A Forever Family. But most importantly, I am the father of four amazing children. Hi, I'm Dana McKay, and I saw Rob on The Ellen Show, and when I realized his organization was based right here where I live, I knew I had to get involved. I'm also a social media consultant, a radio host, a podcast producer, and a mother of two children. See, our country's foster care system is shattered, and this podcast is about how we as a community can come together to bring about change, changing the system, and changing the lives of children in care. Welcome to the Fostering Change Podcast. Today, Rob and I are talking to Maureen Flatley. Maureen is a Boston-based government relations and strategic consultant, best known for her expertise in government reform and oversight of adoption and child welfare. Her work has included advocacy for children and families in a variety of areas. Using a broad, bipartisan array of relationships on Capitol Hill, she has focused her attention on the nexus between individual injustice and large-scale system reform. In that capacity, she has advised public and private agencies corporations and nonprofits, attorneys, families, and children. I'm sure we're going to learn a lot from Maureen today, so thank you for being on the podcast. Rob? Dana and I, we started this um, podcast because we truly believe that educating our public about our shattered system is the only way we're going to see change. For so many years, I've sat back and I've watched people talk about foster care, talk about adoption, talk about the things that to me are so many myths about it, and they really don't understand truly what's going on. And when we see the statistics that only 54% of our kids who are in the foster care system are actually going to graduate from high school and that only 3% get a college education, um, we failed. And so, you know, what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk a little bit about you, about what you've been doing, about what you do. Um, I do want to hear a little bit of your backstory about you and your dad um, to start out with. So, because I think that that's, to me, so important that gave you that drive that I see in you. I've heard the story and I love it. So welcome. And so let's hear a little bit about you. Hi, Rob. So good to talk to you. Well, about me, I grew up in Washington, D.C. And I was there at a particular time in history when a lot of big things were happening. The Civil Rights Act was passed. I was there during Kennedy's presidency. And I was really lucky to have parents who were very involved in kind of the headlines of the day. My father was an FBI agent. He spent a lot of his FBI career working on Capitol Hill with the Senate Racketeering Committee. And he was he was the agent who was widely credited with um, developing the testimony against the mob in the 60s, which then led to some pretty um, important changes in the law, along with the conviction of dozens, if not hundreds, of bad guys. So when he retired from the FBI, I was a young woman in my early 20s, and he decided to start a consulting business that built on his FBI career. And so we specialized in a number of things, but we really focused on government reform and oversight and helping people understand how to advance systemic change. It was an amazing education to work with my dad because he was somebody who really knew how to take information, synthesize it, and then turn it into a compelling and persuasive argument to bring about reform. So we worked together for years, and we did all kinds of 
stuff. It was interesting. We worked on a variety of fairly high-profile public interest issues. So, you know, overall cost overruns in government spending and um, the Woburn Water case, which then turned into um, the movie The Civil Action and the book. Um, so I really felt empowered by this. And my father gave me the great gift of understanding how to translate sort of thought into action. Um, he died very suddenly and unexpectedly in the early 1990s. And I was really at loose ends and had no thought about continuing the work that he and I had done together. And I took a little time off. And over time, I was contacted by a friend in California who had been working with a young Mexican woman, a migrant farm worker. Her son was put in foster care because she disagreed with a doctor about medical treatment and an experimental drug trial. The child had leukemia. She wanted to get her son back. And my friend called because he didn't know anybody. He didn't really know what to do. I knew nothing about child welfare at that time, but I knew how to get information and I knew how to make things happen. So I went out there and did some poking around and very quickly it became evident that um, this county was putting kids in the system and keeping them there, whether they should leave or not, because they were assigning multiple social security numbers to the children so that they could make multiple Title IV claims from the Fed. So it was a fraud case, and boy, I knew exactly what to do with that. So I came back to Washington, where I was living at the time, and talked to some friends on the Hill and explained that I really felt it was a government accountability issue. Fortunately, a lot of people agreed with me. And this was at the time when the Adoption and Safe Families Act was being crafted originally. And it really kind of dovetailed with some of the goals that the sponsors of that bill had, which one of the primary goals was that kids should not grow up in foster care. And so there should be strict timelines about how long they can stay in the system and that there should be prompt reunification efforts whenever appropriate and or permanency planning. So that's how I got into child welfare. And fortunately, my first big legislative um, campaign was very successful very quickly. And so people started calling me. And I really took the skills that my father gave me and applied them, I think, in some ways, in a way that child welfare hadn't really seen Rob, because, you know, you know, because you're in the issue, you were in the system, you've lived this your whole life. When it's you, it can really seem overwhelming. And the average person doesn't really understand how government works. And so it's hard for them sometimes to develop an action plan that can actually be operationalized. So that kind of became my, my calling card, if you will. And that's what I'm still doing today. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That is, there's so much there. You know, so there's so many things that are happening on the Hill that, you know, people talk all the time about, you know, initiatives that we're making to try to better foster care. You know, and I'm going to take our state of Maryland for, for instance, this, this first start this conversation. And in our state, it took six years for us to finally get a bill passed. And I, I think you're familiar with the, the social security bill that was passed where kids who are, in the system and receive social security checks, we are the only state that will actually be setting money aside out of that social security check to put in an interest-bearing savings account for children who are aging out so that when they do age out, we give them some type of safety net. I just recently found out that that really hasn't been implemented. The bill was passed 
but nobody knows what to do. And so as Mm -hmm. I'm digging through this more and more, I'm finding out that we're seeing that throughout our country in lots of different states. And we'll take example Mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania where they just did a tuition waiver. I reached out to some kids who are aging out of the system and, and the in Pennsylvania and asked them about it. And they were like, we don't know anything. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to fill the paperwork out. We don't know, you know, and I feel what I'm seeing so much and like the family first um, act that just also everybody was screaming and yelling how great this was. Nobody knows about it and they don't know what to do. It's just a bunch of talk. So tell me, where do you see happening and how do you feel about what the changes are that are coming about? This is really where the action is. People get all excited. There are bills in Congress. There are bills in the state legislature. This sounds great. They're doing something. The system is moving. But there are two problems. The first problem is that child welfare is, is viewed and adoption are viewed as state law issues, which even 100 plus years ago when the orphan trains were trudging from New York to Oklahoma was actually not the case. Um, But nevertheless, that's been the the approach. So as the feds have gotten more and more appropriately involved, there really hasn't been, in my opinion anyway, kind of an effective approach to implementation. So in other words, the activists and the grassroots people will get all excited. Oh my gosh, this is so exciting. A great bill. Let's do it. But then once the bill passes, in my opinion, that's when the real work starts because it's all about the implementation. So that's number one. We really have to have a more practical approach to how do you make these bills work at the local level? Because between the feds and the states, there's a huge gap. And quite frankly, a lot of the time, the states don't want to do what the feds are recommending to them. The second part of it, and I think that in some ways, this is the bigger problem when it comes to effective rulemaking and implementation is that to a great extent for years, the quote unquote lobby around child welfare was basically the industry of child welfare. So, you know, a group of adoption service providers get together and they form an organization. And then, you know, you have groups like the Child Welfare League, whose members are very heavily populated by people who have contracts with the states. So number one, they're very reluctant to ruffle the feathers of their clients, so to speak. Secondly, anytime you look at industry lobbying, and it can be any industry, there are really two goals. One is less regulation. The other is more money. And so when a bill like the Family First Act comes forward, um, for instance, in that case, it's, you know, I joked with a friend of mine who is in the group home business because I said, this is like the turkey voting for Thanksgiving for you guys, because it puts timelines on how long the states can pay for congregate care. And the idea was to move, to create incentives to keep kids either in their families or reunite them with their families whenever possible. The bottom line was trying to achieve permanence in a more timely fashion. Based on what I've seen so far, I think we're going to have a real problem with this bill because right away, one of the Hill staffers who had been an architect of the bill retired from Congress and went to work for one of the largest counties in the country to, with one stated goal, which was to keep the bill from moving forward. Sometimes activists and grassroots people will get really excited about something, but they won't necessarily understand what the funding mechanisms are, or the funding isn't adequate, or maybe it's too much money with not enough accountability. But at the end of the day, 
the reason the old expression is the devil's in the details, because as these bills move forward, you really have to understand where people stand on the substance of the bill, who's actually with you and who's not. I want to talk a minute about this social security issue, because that's something that I've worked on in Congress for years. Probably more than 10 years ago, Congressman Pete Stark, now retired from California, introduced a bill that would have made it illegal for the states to withhold Social Security funds from kids and would have made it mandatory that the kids receive those funds. And practically everybody involved with the system opposed the bill. Why? Because the states complained that this was an important revenue maximization resource for them. Setting aside two things, one, it's really not that much money in the big picture to the states. And two, the money doesn't go into child welfare in most states. It goes into the state's general fund. And so let's say the child is receiving those funds for a real reason, that that child needs various services, that the child has a disability. So there's absolutely no accountability if that child doesn't get the services that the Social Security income is supposed to be subsidizing. So in other words, if you or I were a third-party payee for, say, Aunt Sally in a nursing home, and we were not using Aunt Sally's Social Security funds to care for her. We would both be arrested and charged criminally, okay? But if a state takes the Social Security funds of a child in their care and then doesn't even know where that child is, much less provide services to that child, absolutely nothing happens, which leads us to the really big problem in child welfare, which is that there is an almost complete lack of accountability if the states don't do what federal law requires or even state law requires. So to your point about the Maryland bill, I was so excited about that because, as you know, I grew up in Maryland and I remain close to a number of Maryland uh, state legislators, including Jamie Raskin, who's now in Congress. And I know how hard they worked on that. And I was so proud of Maryland because, you know, it's the right thing to do. But I had also heard that the bill wasn't actually being implemented. So I think, you know, that's a perfect example of something that we very concretely can um, can take in hand and put some meat on the bone. Yeah. You know, I, I was actually, I was excited about the bill. I, you know, I knew how hard the Delegate Carr and, and you know, Senator Madalino had pushed to get this bill through six years is actually what it took. And to find out by, um, you know, Senator Snow and, um, I mean, Delegate Snow and Senator Moon sitting at our center to hear that, you know, they really didn't know anything about what was going on and that it was just so hard to implement and it was so hard to manage and it was so hard. But the one question I asked, um, which I seem to hear throughout many states is there's always something attached to these bills. Um, and the things that are attached to the bills seem to be happening. But the the, the true manner of, you know, I, I've said this so many times, kids who are in the system could care less whether you're blue or whether you're red. Kids in the system just want us to let them know they matter and we're there to help them. So when I see a bill like the one we had in our state pass or, you know, I see this whole entire, you know, family first, you know, prevention service act that was happening. And, you know, I, I just was, I was in West Virginia last week and West Virginia is trying to be the very first state that is implementing all of this family first 
Virus Prevention Service hacks. They want to be the state that's going to really make a change. And I actually said, actually said to Senator Manchin, which, by the way, I never got an answer. What are we going to do with all those kids in the group homes? What are we going to do? You know, I mean, this whole entire thing is is let's let's support the family more. Let's keep kids with families. Okay, but you've got a drug epidemic. You're not taking any money and and implementing more treatment facilities for these parents who are literally strung out on drugs. Mm-hmm. And and you take a state like West Virginia that, by the way, it's a dying state. And the drugs is really what has killing the state because there's no work. You know, there's so much more of this bigger picture. I just think people, mm-hmm. they're just like, oh, let's all stand on Capitol Hill for a photo shoot because we got right. this passed. Right. But right. what are we really so doing? What? Yeah. Right. You know, so let's go back to the how do you implement the Social Security Bill? Because it's the beginning of, I think, the discussion of the, of the Family First Act. You know, every state has an account for every child already. They're receiving federal subsidies for each child in, for the most part. They know how to set up an account, Rob. This is not rocket science when it comes to sequestering the Social Security funds. And so for them to, you know, sort of wring their hands and say, gee, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to do this. There are precedents in almost any government entitlement program, food stamps, you know, aid to dependent children, the old FDIC. They know how to set up accounts for people and they know how to keep track of the money. It's not, as I said, it's not rocket science. So, you know, I think the first, the first response on the Social Security bill side is to say, you know what, stop the hand wringing. This is not rocket science. This is something that the average state child welfare person does every day. So let's do it. When when will you be ready to, to start running this program? Make it concrete. As far as Family First is concerned, you know, I think I told you when you were going to West Virginia that I was concerned that West Virginia is being sued by another spinoff of the ACLU. And, and I wanted to talk with you today a little bit about the implication that these lawsuits have had. So I happen to think I know a lot of people in West Virginia have spent a lot of time there. I think that there are a lot of great people working in West Virginia's system. And, you know, I think you've made one of the most salient points about West Virginia, which is that it is a desperately poor state. Anytime you have a poor economy and a lack of jobs, you're going to have more kids in the system. You're going to have more substance abuse. You're going to have more mental health issues. But I think that West Virginia has really tried to take the bull by the horns and be proactive about it. So now, you know, Marshall Lowry comes sweeping in and, you know, this is somebody who's already sued more than half the state child welfare systems for various perceived infractions dating back to the 1960s, literally. And if these lawsuits were working, child welfare would be a paradise, which we know it's not. So now, while West Virginia is trying to be proactive and capable by the horns, they now have to deal with the distraction of these lawsuits, which are in my opinion, a complete waste of time. And I served on a court-appointed panel when the Washington, D.C. child welfare system was being sued. Um, So I've seen these cases up close and personal. Now the system, instead of actually doing the work, is going to have to cater to the demands of a, you know, very litigious public interest law firm and take all the money that it requires to defend themselves against this lawsuit and or comply with whatever demands are made, rightly or wrongly. And so, again, we have a child welfare system. You know, when you have a state that's really trying to get ahead of the curve a little bit, almost invariably, 
somebody comes in to say, you know, no, we're going to sue you because, you know, the, by the way, these cases are all couched as several civil rights cases. So the attorneys get paid whether the kids win or not. So um, when I look at a state like West Virginia, I think the first thing we need to do is get rid of the lawyers. And the second thing we need to do is sit with them and concretely see where they need help. Because, you know, the other piece of this implementation discussion, Rob, is that almost no state, even the most well-intended states, can actually do some of these things by themselves. And there may be very concrete things that outside groups and interested parties can do to help them with implementation. But there has to be a discussion about it. So, you know, typically I'll say to people, well, you know, question number one is, are you implementing? And if you're not, why not? And if you need things that you don't have to do it, then um, this is an opportunity for grassroots activists and, and advocacy groups to really look at things in a different way and to say, okay, yeah, stuff on the Hill, that's great. But as these bills move forward, whether it's in the state legislature or in Congress, you really have to be prepared to say to your state, how are you going to do this? And when are you going to do it? Because that's the kind of pressure that will make it happen. And, and I'll use the Adoption and State Families Act as a good example, because that was a bill that required the states to do a lot of things and, in, and sort of complicated things. And so, so the way it works when a bill passes Congress, the states get two years theoretically, to implement fully because some states like Texas, their legislature only meets um, every other year. So if the states have to do any legislating to implement, and they don't on everything, but many things they do, they have to have a window. So between the passage of the Adoption and State Families Act, which was in 1997, and full implementation, which was in 1999, we spent a lot of time at the state level helping the states, A, understand what the bill required of them, and B, helping them identify the resources that they need to make, to make the bill work. So in that case, it was a pretty simple goal. The overall goal was to help get kids out of the system who've been languishing for a long period of time, to achieve permanence, not just through adoption, although adoption was a big part of it. And the goal was to double the number of adoptions a year within five years. And in fact, we ended up doubling the number probably within three years because there was a pretty egregious backlog of kids who were illegally free. Anyway, that was one example, but I think that Family First is a lot more technical. So for some states, I think it is going to be more difficult. And I think one of the things that we're going to see, and this is where guys like you can really make a difference, is that a lot of states don't have an adequate number of foster parents to move kids out of group homes. And they don't have an adequate number of caseworkers to process the cases where kids can appropriately be returned home or live with kin, but most importantly, get out of those high costs. And we know poor outcome, in most cases, driven congregate care situations. So I think one thing that's important to know as anyone goes into a conversation with their state is, okay, what are the barriers in our state to implementing this? Do we have enough caseworkers? Are we doing enough to recruit family-based foster parents? Um, And the answer is going to be different from state to state, but I would venture to say that no state has enough foster parents. So that's a good starting point. I I agree. And that is one of the things that we hear quite often, Dana, and I've had this conversation and I hear it as I travel the country is that, you know, we do not have enough homes. Um, There has not been a state where I've ever heard anybody say we have a plethora of homes for our children who are in the system. As this 
Family First Prevention Service Act. I, don't know, I mean, it's been called so many different things. Um, it came out. The, I've been going around asking people about it. And besides in being in West Virginia last week, where they actually, you know, seem to are figuring it out or trying to figure out. And, you know, the, the head of um, the child welfare um, services, she said, oh, my gosh, it's so much. She's like, I feel like we're not doing things that we were supposed to be doing. And now they had like a deadline. I think it was the other day they had a deadline to start doing something mm-hmm. different. But what I keep getting people telling me, you know, is that, oh, we thought that this was about, this act was all about letting gay people be foster parents. Different bill. <laughs> exactly. Completely different bill. Right. But, but you see where I'm, I mean, I think that we have, everybody has mixed in these bills together where people don't know the difference and they're like oh well i you know we saw you know and alec mappa happens to be a friend of mine you know we saw him on capitol hill he was you know yay with family equality they've been plastering it it's a different bill guys by the way it's a totally different thing and i think that that's what everybody thinks that this was well let's talk about the whole plethora of bills problem because as somebody who works on legislation in congress i get concerned about a couple of things and oh by the way i adore alec ma but he is not he is like the funniest person that ever lived i'm still laughing about a show of his that i saw on broadway two years ago um <laughs> anyway so everybody wants to be quote unquote good on the issues right and really child welfare is an issue where there is genuine bipartisanship you have republicans as well as democrats who have genuine subject matter expertise which is great Because, you know, people ask me all the time, how do you get so many bills passed in this sector? And I'm like, well, it's because there are a lot of people on the Hill who care about it. There are a lot of people who know about it. We have tons of Republicans who've been foster parents, who've adopted from foster care. So they understand in a very personal way what the issues are. And there's a very well-organized caucus um, to support, you know, with subject matter and training and briefings and so forth. But, big but. So, you know, staffers, many of whom have become subject matter experts, but not all of them are, will come up with ideas based on input they get from outside groups and people like me and you and others. And they'll start to put bills together. And the tension is always the states really don't want the feds to tell them what to do. They're always going to argue that they know better what they need. And, you know, up to a certain, certain point, even I would agree that at the local level, there is an insight into problems that you don't necessarily see from the three, you know, from the airplane view. But here's the problem: the states want the federal dollars, but with the federal dollar come comes rules. And you know, as I said before, one of the concerns that I have is that the feds have sort of constructed some outcome measurements that, in many instances, the states aren't even close to hitting. Whether it's you know length of stay in care or, you know, achieving permanence or, you know, limiting the number of kids who age out of the system, kids who are injured in the system. 2,000 kids die of child abuse in the foster care system every year. So, Wow, do you hear that number, Dana? Nothing really really bad happens, though. You know, you have states like Florida and, quite frankly, Massachusetts, where I live now, where there have been a number of really high-profile child fatalities of kids in the system who absolutely died as a result of someone's negligence, and nothing happens. You have a program that's based here that's a national for-profit foster care provider that during a Senate investigation three or four years ago was determined to have 
a child's fatality rate of children in their care, something like 43 times the national average, astronomical rates. And what was their punishment? They got a $29 million contract from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts last year. So, you know, when we talk about what the states want and how the states want to proceed, I think we really have a couple of issues. So, on the one hand, as I said at the outset, I think the states have legitimate challenges and concerns, and we need to be sensitive to that. But on the other hand, the states are collecting billions and billions of dollars in federal funds every year, whether they do a good job or not, whether they're meeting federal goals or not, whether they're achieving permanence for kids or not, whether they're even keeping the kids alive in some instances. So when I think about the advocacy that's grown up around child welfare, as I said before, I think one of the problems is that when advocates align themselves with providers, and this is true in any issue, so it would be like people who are concerned about drug prices being in a coalition with pharmaceutical companies. That's never going to work. Never going to work. You're going to get completely co-opted. So the concern that I have now, but I, but I actually see a response coming together, is that when you work with a big trade association, so maybe somebody with the word league in their name or, you know, councils, if your membership is heavily populated with service providers, the advocacy that you get is going to be very industry-focused, very industry-driven. And so, you know, what I believe needs to happen, and you're actually, as far as I'm concerned, the tip of the spear realm, there really needs to be a more focused voice for people in the system, people who have been in the system. You know, when you think about how the survivors of Catholic Church abuse cases have come together, they, they formed a very powerful lobby, and, I, and I'm proud to say that I work with them. That's what really needs to happen here. And for the first time in the last five or ten years, I'm really beginning to see critical mass being achieved on the part of aged out foster kids, survivors of the system, people who are injured in the system. But honestly, Ron, that is the path to success. Every time you go to Capitol Hill or go to Annapolis in a coalition with people who have contracts with the state, what you're going to get is more business and less focused on human beings. And, you know, maybe they're doing great work. Maybe some of them are terrific. But the bottom line is that they're not necessarily going to have the same goals that that someone who has survived the system would have. Right. Their goals are keeping themselves in business, not taking care of kids and making sure they get everything they need. Yep. It makes sense. This has actually been very educational. It it has. It has. We've got to have you back on again, my friend, because you really have, you know, so many times we're talking about everybody's story. And and what I love hearing that you've done for us today is what we've always said. you're, You're educating us. And I think it's very, very important that, you know, we all as a public need to be educated about our shortfallings in our system. But, you know, also to know what can we do to to keep people accountable. You know, you know, back to our state, you know, to hear the fact that this bill was passed almost two years ago, 
and nobody is implementing this social security. You know, we, we asked two questions, and as we're getting ready to end this, um, Dana always asks two questions to every one of our guests um, about foster care and what they can do, what would they like to see the change. And I want to say, and I've said this before on our, our um, show, but I want to re- reiterate what I feel the two of the biggest shortfalls that we have within our system is number one, we do not set these children up for financial success. Um, I truly do believe that every single child deserves to have a portion of that stipend. That's why I don't care where they get that money from. I don't care if it's coming from social security. I don't care if it's coming from the, the stipend, the monthly stipend, the foster parents get, but there should be a portion of money from the moment the child steps foot into foster care and it needs to go into an interest bearing savings account for that child for when they age out. I'm not saying write them a check at 18. What I'm saying to do is give them a net, give them a net first month's rent, down payment on a car, help to pay their cell phone. But whatever it is, we have to financially set them up for success because I truly believe that in the mindset of a child in the system, if they know that we're looking at their future already, they're going to start looking at their future. And then the second thing that we must do is we must give complete wraparound services for kids who are aging out. And that's does not mean, sorry, Pennsylvania, a free tuition (laughs) waiver. That means complete wrap around services. So we know for a fact, and you take the, you take, you know, Rochester University, the University of Rochester, beautiful, great, amazing school. We had a young man who received our scholarship a couple of years ago who went to the University of Rochester. By the way, he busted his butt to get into that school. It's not an easy school to get into. And I will never forget the phone call that Reese and I got. And we said to him, you know, he called to tell us about his grades. And it was, you know, about November, and and I said, you know, oh, we're so excited, so proud of you. I said, by the way, what are you doing for Christmas? I said, are you going to your foster parents' home? And he says, no. He says, I'm I'm completely aged out now. And I said, really? He said, yeah. And he says, and I don't know what to do. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, because the University of Rochester completely shuts their campus down at Christmas. So. Here this young man could end up in a shelter, and we all know you get into sheltered life, you know, it is so hard to get out of, but these are the type of services that I think we must prepare, and we must we must stop thinking that we're just, you know, give me a, a you know, a waiver for, for, you know, tuition, and that makes it all better. No, no, we need wraparound services completely. So, so again, thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for being my friend. Thank you for this journey that you and I have, by the way, just begun. Um, Absolutely. And we have so far to go, but I know that I'm going to get there because you're standing next to me and I want you to know how much I love you. Just admire you so much. But Dana, I think you have a couple questions you'd like to ask. Yes. So from your perspective and the things that you see, which is different than I think most of our guests, if you could change two things about the foster care system right now, what would they be? Wow. <laughs> two things. Well, I think thing one is a little bit of what Rob just said. When we release somebody from being incarcerated in America, there are more services and supports available for them than there are for kids leaving the foster care system. Unbelievable. So we really have to start to make this system for real about the kids and about the kids' viability. So certainly to the extent the system makes millions and millions of dollars on each child, potentially, 
we need to have a completely different approach to that. That's number one. And sort of a corollary to that of number two is that, you know, we have to remember that to a great extent, the things that we end up having to support these kids around, the trauma that they experience is not from their families. It's from being in the system. It's from going to 15 different schools. It's from having placements with child molesters. It's from having dangerous people close to them. It's from the system, you know, a few years ago, Florida realized that they couldn't even locate 20% of the kids in their system. And so we, we talk a lot about children in this country and we pay a lot of lip service to kids. But at the end of the day, children in the child welfare system are the least empowered children on the face of the earth. They have very few rights once they enter the system. They have very little recourse once they leave the system. And to Rob's point, they are oftentimes really dumped out of the system with no support, financial or otherwise, with an almost complete inability to function, in part because they've been educationally neglected by the system. They perhaps have been medically neglected by the system. They certainly haven't received any kind of consistent care or um, support that would give them the, the ability to function as adults in any kind of meaningful way. So we have a lot of work to do, but I, I really feel like you guys have started to focus this issue in a, in a whole other way. And the devil is in the details. And quite frankly, I'm tired of watching legislation that advances the interests of the big guys. I want to see bills that protect the child's right to their social security, that protect their identity. By the way, that's something we're going to be coming back to soon. Oh, my gosh, which um, is something, that, by the way, I want us to get another another podcast on because I, a whole episode. that is a yeah. whole episode yeah. whole that episode. people do not even realize what's right. going on out there. So, yeah, definitely right. going to have you back so for that one. So I guess the, the, that's kind of a long-winded answer to your question, Dana, but I think the, 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 the big irony in child welfare is that everybody's talking about the rights of the child, that the ACLU group was called Children's Rights for Years. They just changed their name because really they weren't advancing children's rights very well, but that's just me. We really have to make that have meaning. We have to give these kids the kind of rights and protections that they deserve and that they don't have now because the orientation of the system is to support the system. And that's got to change. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been very insightful, very educational, and we appreciate you taking the time to come on and all the work that you're doing in it. My pleasure. You My know, pl any, any time. Well, thank you so much, and we're definitely going to have you back. And as I say all the time, it's time for all of us to stop blaming the system, but try to come together to help change the system. And so for you, thank you right. for the change that we're trying to do together as a team. I love you. I can't wait to catch up with you, you again Rob. soon, and we will talk. Take care, everybody. Perfect. Have an amazing Thank day. Thank you so much. Thank Have a you. great day. Bye-bye. Dana and I would like to thank all of you for listening to the Fostering Change podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Make sure you follow Comfort Cases on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Comfort Cases. 
And check out the Fostering Change blog at comfortcases.org. So everybody, we want to hear your stories. So reach out to us if you would like to be a guest on the podcast. You can find me on Facebook at Rob Shear, Instagram at Rob underscore Shear, and on Twitter at Rob Shear 6. And please share this podcast and leave us a review. Remember, we're all part of the same community. Your zip code, it's not your community, but it's our human race. Let's all make a difference.